You know, I meet people sometimes and I ask them why God should let them into heaven. And they go on some discourse about how they were raised in the church, how they were baptized, how they were a member and their attendance or that their father or grandfather was a preacher. Big deal. Privileges mean little. In fact, they make you even more guilty as we will see before we're done with Romans. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at the evidence of God as part of our study in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells his readers that everybody has a knowledge of God because it is evidenced through creation, the stars, the oceans, the animals, etc. In chapter 2, the Apostle warned those who thought themselves safe from judgment because they viewed their own actions as better than those listed in the previous chapter. As we move into verse 12 today, we see that in addition to God's revealing himself through creation, he also makes himself known through conscience. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 2. I hope you bring your Bible to church. I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the Word of God in your hand. Now, I hope you realize that before you can get a man saved, you have to get him lost. A person must come to the realization that their sin is an absolute offense to a holy God. That God's justice and holiness is offended such that his anger burns against us. That we are, as Paul says, by nature children of wrath. So much so that Jesus can say, he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe the wrath of God abides upon him. And so having introduced the gospel in chapter 1 verses 1 through 17... We're in that doctrinal section of Romans that deals with condemnation. Beginning in 118 all the way through 320, Paul is painting the universal need for Jesus Christ. He's demonstrating that all are equally in need of a Savior because all are universally sinful. And so Paul is giving us the bad news before he gives us the good news. Now I hope you found the text by now, Romans chapter 2. We left off last time in verse 10, but we want to get a running start, so begin with me in verse 9. He writes, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So having introduced the gospel, Paul is showing the universal need for the gospel. And to do that, this gospel that he says he is unashamed of, he acts like a prosecuting attorney. And he takes every possible segment of society and demonstrates their guilt. 
First, he brings an accusation. Then he brings the evidence against them. He proves their guilt. He secures a, a conviction. And he says that all men, wherever they are, whatever they have done, are without excuse. And his thesis is the same with every segment of society. That no one can plead innocence before God because no one can plead ignorance about God. If you remember in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way through verse 32, he dealt first with a Gentile idolatrous pagan. And these are people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And of course, uh, people who would read that might say, well, how could they suppress the truth and unrighteousness? How can an idolater who's never even seen a Bible or heard a Bible have any truth to suppress? And Paul's answer, if you remember, comes in 120. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through the things that he has created, through the things that he has made, so that no one has an excuse. The reason they live like pagans is because the information they have, they suppress. And so they are guilty, inexcusably guilty, before a holy God. Now, when you come to Romans chapter 2, you turn a corner. And we saw last time that the pronouns change. He moves from the general plural to the singular specific. And he begins to address what I am calling the respectable sinner, the moral man, the person who lives a relatively clean life. Uh, the person whom the society would say, he's a good person, he's a good citizen. And that person would be quick to condemn the shameless acts that are described in the first chapter in Romans 1. Not every Gentile is history documents, either in that day or this day. Not every pagan was an idolater. There were many good, moral, lost people in the world. And so they would listen to the list that Paul gives in the first chapter, and he'd, they'd say, you're right, Paul. The homosexual is worthy of condemnation, as is the idolater and the person who has eyes full of greed and the person who's disobedient to his parents and those who, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Give it to him, Paul. And we saw that society or that individual or both that begins to fall apart where absolutes are denied and sin just has a holiday. And that's where we are in America today. Our society is becoming more and more like the picture of those described in Romans 1. And people would read that and they would say, yes, they're awful people. And Paul, of course, anticipating the different objections turns to such people in chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, he said, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you judge yourself. For you who judge do the same things. The very judgments that they express against other people show what? It shows that they have a knowledge of God. They're saying, I understand the standards of God so much so that I can say you are guilty. And these are people who are living on a higher plane than those individuals described in the first chapter. They would say, yes, those people are wicked. They're deceitful. They are ruthless. They're covenant breakers. They're idol worshipers. They are worthy of condemnation. But I'm not that bad. We're decent, decent people. I may not be perfect, but certainly I am not as bad as those folks. They may need this saving gospel that you preach of, Paul, but I am just fine. 
And that's our human tendency. Our human tendency is always to compare ourselves next to someone that we are better than. And next to them, we feel good about ourselves. But Paul is saying, in essence, listen, when you make a judgment, you are affirming that you have a knowledge of God. You are affirming that you understand God's standard. And if you think about it, you too are guilty of breaking his standard. You may not have committed adultery, but you've committed adultery in your heart. You may not have stolen, but you have fudged on your taxes. You may not be guilty of lying, but you've shaded the truth. You may not live like a prostitute, but you dress like one and have a spirit of sensuality. Unless we forget, even as born-again Christians, just dumping this on the moral respectable sinner, we too can be guilty of the same things. And Paul knows that. Paul is writing not just to give us a, a defense on how to deal with the various segments of society, but also to take the scripture and apply it to our own lives. We can look down on other people because maybe they've chosen a different educational path than the one we have chosen. We can look down on someone else because they haven't stopped smoking or maybe they're still single at 40. We can look down on someone because they didn't vote the way I voted. And this kind of judgmental spirit will ruin a fellowship and destroy the unity that God calls us to. I mean, where does a man go who has messed up in his marriage and raised awful children? Where does the immoral woman go who's looking for forgiveness and acceptance amongst a group of people? Listen, if they can't come to the local church, they will go right back out into the world. And so I'm not talking about compromising God's standards this morning, but I am speaking about a non-judgmental attitude of unconditionally accepting people the way God unconditionally accepts us in Jesus Christ. And let me say that while we have occasional Pharisees who come into our fellowship, I've never been in a church that is more gracious and more loving and more accepting than the people of Community Bible Church. I've never witnessed so many people who have been saved by grace who reach out to people in grace. But let's guard our hearts. Let's keep it that way. And I recognize that there will be always some people with a condemning, judgmental spirit, but we are to love and accept them as well. And so to demonstrate the inescapability of the judgment of God, Paul asks the rhetorical question in verse 3, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? No, you will not. Because you are equally guilty without Jesus Christ. And so when he uses this word, therefore, he's anticipating, he's looking ahead to those objections that people would have with those folks in chapter 1. And he is painting a clear picture that you are without excuse before God. Now some people think, well, God is too kind, too loving to condemn me to hell. And so Paul, in answering that objection, says in verse 4, do you think lightly? of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God should lead you to repentance. The goal of God's riches and kindness and blessings are repentance. Some people assume because they are blessed of God that they are okay with God. And Paul says those blessings should be an impetus to bring you to salvation. 
And so the first point we made from this chapter is that God's judgment is inescapable. Secondly, we saw that God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment is fair. God will be absolutely righteous when he condemns a person to hell for all of eternity. And if you remember, that was the thrust of verses 5 through 10. The Apostle Paul elaborates that the only reasons God's blessings has not brought about repentance in some people's lives are because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart. We saw the word stubborn gives us our English word sclerosis. It speaks of hardness because of the hardness of some people's hearts. Some people have hard arteries and their physical heart is not functioning well. Other people have hard spiritual hearts clogged with sin and an unrepentant spirit and their spiritual hearts are not functioning well. And so he's reminding them because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to their deeds. And he quotes Psalm 62.12, a verse of scripture quoted 42 times in the Bible. And as we examined last time, the thrust of verses 6 through 10 is not salvation, but judgment. Paul does not contradict himself by saying on the one hand, we're saved by grace, and then on the other hand, we're saved by works. He will say when we come to the 11th chapter, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What makes the grace of God the grace of God is you do not earn it, you do not merit it, you are not deserving of it. So contextually, the emphasis of verses 6 through 10 is not that you are saved by your works, but that you are judged by your works. And God's justice will be vindicated. God will be shown to be fair and righteous because a man's works will show whether or not he has had genuine faith. And so beginning in verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, Eternal life, that's one category of people who've been born again. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The reformers said it this way, a man is saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. We're not talking about sinlessness, we're not talking about perfection, but Paul is speaking of direction, that some profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, as he writes in Titus 1.15. The direction of your life will demonstrate whether or not you've really met God. It's much like King David. A man whom, according to chapter 4 of Romans, was a saved man. A man whom the Bible calls one after God's own heart. But if you know David's history, you know he committed some heinous sins. He was guilty of adultery and not just singular murder, but multiple murder. And yet when you look at David's life and the total emphasis of his life, it was to please the Lord. On the other side of the spectrum, we have one like Judas. He was a religious man. Matthew 27, 4 says that he even confessed the act of betraying Christ to be evil when he says, I've sinned against innocent blood. 
And he even felt remorse, the Bible says, and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. But the total emphasis of his life was that of disobedience and unbelief. And so in verses 7 through 10, Paul is describing the overall impact and emphasis and direction of one's life. Now, I reviewed that section because I want us to walk clearly into the context this morning. Not to mention, I want you to be able to think your way all the way through, paragraph by paragraph, through the book of Romans. So, having stated that God's judgment is inescapable, and having affirmed that God's judgment is righteous, Paul goes on to teach us in verse 11 that God's judgment is unbiased. It's unbiased. He says in verse 11, for there is... No partiality with God. Now that statement would shock a Jew because Jewish people were God's chosen nation. They had a special covenant with God and some of the Jewish people thought that that would bring them special treatment. And so in verses 12 through 16, Paul will elaborate and he will affirm that it makes no difference whether you are a Gentile or a Jew. He's dealing primarily with the moral, respectable Gentile. The Jew is in the background. When we come to verse 17, he'll turn the tables. There'll be a shift once again in subjects and he will focus solely on the Jew. Now we tend to divide society differently in our day. But in God's eyes, we're all equal with the same problem. We all miss the mark of his righteousness. Be it the sage or the simpleton, the governor or the gunman, the doctor or the dunce, the sophisticate or the savage, it doesn't matter who you are. We all miss the mark of God's righteousness and are equally in need of salvation. Quakers used to under, underscore that uh, while there may be inequalities in this life, there are no inequalities in death. And so if you've ever been to a Quaker graveyard as I have, every stone is the same height, affirming that all men will die and all men must meet God and that God shows no partiality. And so to demonstrate that there's no partiality with God, Paul now contrasts the Jew with the Greek. Look, if you will, at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, again, a fundamental difference between a Jew and a Gentile is that the Jewish people were God's covenantal chosen people. And so some would think, well, then what advantage is that to being a Jew? In fact, Paul will ask that question when he opens chapter 3. What advantage is there to being a Jew? And he will answer his own question. Great in every respect, because they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is, they were the keepers of the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament because it was the only testament they had, the only scriptures they had. But they were the keepers of God's law. And so the Jew... Because they had the law of God, every Sabbath day would hear it read. But Gentiles never heard it read, unless, of course, they were proselytes. But even with that marvelous advantage and privilege, Paul emphasizes that fundamentally there's no difference between the religious Jew and the moral Gentile. Follow his reasoning. Put on your thinking caps. Try to understand his rationale. This is important. This is a little meaty, but God can help us to grasp this. For all who have sinned 
without the law will also perish without the law. That's a reference to Gentiles. Write that above your text, Gentiles. So that when you're trying to deal with some lost person, you can take them right to this verse and explain it to them. That's a reference to Gentiles who are ignorant of the scriptures. And all, he says, who have sinned under the law, right above that, Jews. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The Jews who are the keepers of the law will be judged by that law. By the way, the Greek New Testament does not say, as the New International puts it, all who sin, but all who have sinned. You need a more literal translation, I have told you, for Bible study purposes. Now, I hope you don't judge my motives when I uh, interact with the Greek New Testament. I feel very privileged and blessed to have studied the original languages for four years and to, build, to have built on that for the last 25 years. But listen, uh, the Greek text sometimes can illuminate some truths that aren't always there. And you need, though, a good, precise, specific English translation because it's going to bring out those fine nuances. One of my uh, seminary professors used to say, well, Greek is like your underwear. You don't show it off, but you use it for support. And so when we need to support some things, I'll bring in the Greek text. But the Bible does not literally say all who sin, but all who have sinned. And so it is in the NAS, the King James, the New King James, the RSV, the Holman Christian, and the ESV. And that's important because Paul is summing up people's lives. And in both cases, the same is true for the moral Gentile or for the religious Jew. All have sinned, be they have a Bible or no Bible at all. Both will perish both will be judged, and the word judged is used synonymously in the New Testament with being condemned. He says both have sinned, and so it doesn't matter your privileges. You know, I meet people sometimes, and I ask them why God should let them into heaven, and they go on some discourse about how they were raised in the church, how they were baptized, how they were a member, and their attendance, or that their father or grandfather was a preacher. Big deal. Privileges mean little. In fact, they make you even more guilty, as we will see before we're done with Romans. And so Paul's making it very clear that just because you have a Bible or you don't have a Bible, there is still no impartiality with God. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. What mattered was not simply their possession of the law, be it written or in the human heart, but their obedience to the law. You say, well, how does someone who does not have a Bible, how does someone who does not have the written law of God be held accountable to the same standard? Well, verses 14 and 15 explain why God can use the exact same principle of condemnation against the man who has no Bible as the one who is raised with a Bible. Follow and understand what he's saying. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. So there are two corresponding facts here about Gentiles that are plainly stated. First, they do not have the law. It's stated twice in verse 14. Externally, they did not possess the Bible. They did not have the Old Testament scriptures. But secondly, he says they do have the law internally. How so? In that they are a law to themselves. Now pay attention. 
Gentiles who do not have the written scriptures, nonetheless instinctively do them by nature. Why? Because they are a law to themselves. He doesn't mean by that that they write their own laws and contract their own morality. But what he does mean is that in their own human person, they are created with God's law from within. Notice, these not having the law are a law to themselves. How so, Paul? Verse 15. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So although they do not have the Bible in their hands, they have the requirement of God's law in their hearts because God wrote it there. That is why innately you know the difference between right and wrong, what is fair, what is unfair, what is just and what is unjust because God wrote his principle of law into your conscience. You are made in the image and likeness of God and that image is born out in your person, in your heart where God wrote his law. It's a reflection of God's character. And so it doesn't matter whether they have a Bible or not. They all have some knowledge of God, as we saw in chapter 1 through creation, and as he argues here in chapter 2 through conscience. Now notice how God wrote his law into their hearts. This is difficult, but again, we need to think it through. And that they, verse 15, they, even pagan Gentiles who have never seen a Bible, they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Your conscience, unless you have damaged it and seared it and branded it and calloused it through habitual, unrepentant sin, will give you a negative, disapproving voice when you do what is wrong. And so in the minds and hearts of people who have never read or heard the Bible, there's this interior dialogue that goes on, alternately either accusing or defending them. It's like being in a courtroom where there's a prosecuting an attorney and a defense attorney, and they both present their respective cases. And so Paul is arguing that within the man, there's a dialogue and a debate that goes on. Three key words. I have them underlined in my text. The first word is hearts. Our hearts on which the requirements of law, the law have been written. Our conscience, underscore the word conscience, our conscience that prods and reproves us. And then he mentions here our thoughts, underscore the word thoughts that usually accuse us or sometimes excuse us. Now there are a lot of people and a growing number of young people in America. 80% of the children under the age of 12 this morning are not in church. We're becoming like Western Europe, more and more pagan. And I meet a lot of young adults, 18 to 25, when I mention some basic biblical facts like Adam or Moses or Noah, they don't have a clue as to what you're speaking about. But nonetheless, Paul is saying they are just as accountable because God in their hearts has placed his law. And that's why there's not a society on the face of the earth that does not have a set of moral standards that they try to apply. To listen again to today's message from Romans chapter 2, part 2 of The Judgment of the Respectable Sinner, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM8. If you have never been to the Middle East or if you have gone but would like to return, we encourage you to find out about the upcoming Search the Scriptures trip to Israel, May 11th through the 22nd. Dr. Brogy will be hosting a guided tour of the Holy Land, and you'll stay in first-class accommodations as you watch the Bible come alive under Pastor Carl's teaching. Find out more by visiting stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow we continue our look at the judgment of the respectable sinner. Join us then as we search the scriptures.